I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share their secrets here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick how they overcame adversity to keep on going, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with Anthony Kitchens. Tony, as he's known by his friends, is the author of an amazing book called The Gift of Pain. He's an entrepreneur and philanthropist. The companies Tony founded have generated more than $100 million in revenue and service the largest multinational corporations in the world. Tony is on a personal mission to help as many people as he can around the world through the wisdom he shares using various platforms, including this very podcast. This is going to be an interview of questioning, defining your purpose, understanding success and what it takes to obtain it. So let's bring in the amazing man himself. Welcome to the show, Anthony Kitchens. Oh, thank you, Jeff, for that wonderful introduction. I feel like I'm on stage someplace. It's amazing. <laughs> you are, sir. You are. <laughs> wow, you, look, you are looking amazing today. How, how are you feeling? feel great. It's good to be with you today and all of the people in the United Kingdom, all of your audience members. So it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am indeed in the United Kingdom, but the show goes all over the world. And speaking of which, where in the world are you today? I'm in the United States and the state of Georgia. Oh, nice. Nice. Beautiful. Okay. So to get us going then, I do want to know about your book, The Gift of Pain. I know the cover is fascinating, so we'll get onto that as well. But before we do that, Tony, I have three questions to get us going. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Tough questions. Well, at least the third one is. I was born <laughs> back March 5th, 1971, so I'm 51 years old. And I was born in Chicago. My childhood was absolutely fabulous. It was a wonderful childhood. And the thing that made it so wonderful was my parents. And we grew up in a middle to lower income tax bracket, as you would most people would describe it. Had exceptional friends, just exceptional neighbors. And it was, it was just a wonderful time. It, it made me who I am today. And I just had such a wonderful upbringing. There were days where we didn't have electricity because my parents couldn't pay the bills. But even in that, my dad would light candles and we would stand outside and just talk and have fun. And it was just part of it. As far as what motivated me to do the things that I'm doing today, it was an, a visit from my uncle who lived in Puerto Rico at the time. 
and he was a businessman. He still is to this day. And I was fascinated sitting there at the kitchen table just as a little pipsqueak <laughs> <laughs> sitting there with with my mom and dad and Benji and just listening to him describe the places he traveled to for work and the doing deals and meeting people. And it was something I never heard before as a youngster. And I said, wow, that fascinated me more than anything. And that's how I started on this journey okay. with that single single seed that he planted. Okay, we'll, we'll come on to that and what your journey is. But what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? I didn't really have dreams about things. I dreamed about who I would become. And I definitely wanted to have a family and, and have the same type of love that I received from my parents. As far as a career is concerned, I think early on, there was nothing really I wanted to do. I, I was infatuated with the army, the military, because I had cousins in the military. And I loved seeing them in uniform. But that was one of the things I said, wow, you know, I would like to be a soldier later in life. So between my uncle Benji and an entrepreneur and my cousins as soldiers, those are the two things that I dreamed about becoming okay. later in life. Okay. So you went through school. When you ended school, what happened? What was your journey? Yeah, after I got to college, well, actually, I, I enlisted, come to find out, in the Army, in the Army Reserve when I was still in high school. Between my junior and senior year, I trained then, and then right after graduation, I had to go back for more training. And when I got to college, I found myself spending, I spent more time working in the computer labs on campus because that was my job than I did in school. And like most entrepreneurs, I had this bright idea to drop out and start a business. And that's what I did. <laughs> this is why <laughs> recommended. How old were you at this stage? I was probably 19, maybe. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. So you knew the answers to everything at this age then, as we, oh, yeah, all, as, as we all did. Yeah, you couldn't tell me anything. <laughs> So what 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 did you do? What business did you go into first? I started at the at the ripe old age of 21 with all of the information in the world that I didn't know. <laughs> and I started a technology services company and it was literally on the, the cusp of people buying personal computers for home and my job was to help them unbox, set them up and make sure they work correctly. And that's the, it was just a basic service. And that's how I started. I think that service is still very much needed today. It is. So you did that. So it's more of a helpline, I guess. Was that done on telephone and things like that? No, it was, it was, everything was done in person. Oh, okay. Oh, Put a okay. lot of miles on my car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you drove around, got everyone set up. What was the next part of your journey? After that, I during that same time, I was interning at a small business, and they were business partners with IBM, this huge, huge company. And you know, I just read about IBM coming up through school, and 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 again, I was transfixed on that, and I got to meet the systems engineers and the sales reps, the marketing reps, as they called them at that time, from IBM, and I just struck up conversations with them. And would you know it, they wind up 
after a period of time, after seeing the, the, the work ethic that I had, they wound up bringing me on as a business partner. So here I am, 21 years old, with this company of one, being a business partner with this company that I'd read about for years. Yeah. It was a dream come true. Yeah, amazing. I've got, I'm going to diverse. I have a trivia question for people listening because I pretty much know, I would guess, that everyone has heard of this huge company called IBM, right? Now, I don't want you to give the answer yet, Tony, but I wonder how many people know what do the letters IBM actually stand for? So this will do stand you well in a, in a good quiz or on Trivial Pursuit. So what does it stand for, Anthony? I know the answer, actually, but... If you don't, yeah. I'm ready to step in, but I'm assuming you do. It's international business machines. Yeah, awesome. So where? what's the history of that? Where did it come from? From IBM? Yeah, yeah. Why, why did they, started, yeah. why did they call it international business machines? Yeah, they started off with, with typewriters, yeah. even before computers were out. And that's how I knew them, from typewriters. Yeah. I think there were select types at that point. Yeah, fascinating story. My brother actually worked for them. That, that's how I know about the interesting part of the story. And very few people know what IBM actually stands for. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got some bonus points in the bag already. There you go. So, Tony, I want to come on to your book now because we found, found out a little about the person that made you who you were up to your mid-20s. But your book is going to take us in a very different direction. It's called The Gift of Pain. I'm not going to ask you any more. I'm just going to let you explain why is it called The Gift of Pain and what is it that happened to you? Absolutely. This is back in 2019, and I was running my first company that I started 29 years ago. and the tide changed politically in the city that we were mostly servicing. We had a lot of clients in this one city, but it was under one big umbrella contract. And, and we just found ourselves in the perfect storm of business challenges. And I had to ultimately close the business in December of 2019. And it was just a very difficult time. This is everything I'd known for the majority of my life. And I had to let employees go the week of Thanksgiving in 2019, which was just horrific. I, mean, I just felt horrible for them and their families. And, and it was just a very difficult time. And the months after that, you know, closing a business is way more difficult than starting one. Sure. I mean, there are so many yeah, things that are tied together and you don't even know the significance of all of the tentacles that a business has and people that it touches as it grows. And so, I remember... Yeah, just before you go on a moment, um, yeah. what was the wave of change that happened that meant you could not or were unable to continue with your company had to close it. What happened? A couple of a couple of factors. One is our one of our main customers. Uh, we were on a contract with them, but they were the lead, and we were the tier two on the contract. And at that time, the city, who 
we were servicing, a new mayor came in. And it was this was a mayor who had never held public office. This is a new person. And nobody knew this mayor. And immediately, and we had been through political changes in the past, but typically politicians are replaced by other people who have been lifelong politicians. And this one was a little different. And when this uh, person came in, they stopped all contracts, every contract that this organization had. And this affected just companies across the United States, a lot of people. And they just wanted to review and make sure that all contracts were awarded fairly and within the terms and conditions, et cetera. And what that did, though, was during their review of not just the one we were on, but all of them, everything, legal services and staffing, every contract they had, all orders stopped. And we went through this for several months. And we were generating about one and a half million dollars a month from this customer. And we could no longer operate because we had just a substantial part of what we did was tied to that contract. And we just physically couldn't hold on anymore any longer. We ran out of money and there was no clear path to quickly shifting to go out and get other customers that can, can take care of the overhead that we had and all of the vendors and suppliers that we had and the, the wise counsel of my attorneys and, and, people that I reached out to was stop the bleeding while you can. And it was just one of the, those situations, it was a perfect storm. It was, you couldn't have predicted it. And it's just, it was, I would say unavoidable in, in a lot of ways, but ultimately, you know, the part of being an entrepreneur, it's my responsibility, period. It's not a political thing. It's not because of someone else's doing. It was my responsibility and it was just something I could not do any longer. And I had to stop the bleeding. Otherwise, it would have been a lot worse. You know, and that was, it was a very difficult time. Sure. So you had a company where a huge percentage of your revenue was coming from one stream. That one, yeah. That yeah. one stream ends. Okay. So let me take you back then to where we, where we were before, which is you started closing down your company then which is not very easy, as you say. No, no. And I remember waking up very early in the morning because 29 years, you're in this pattern. So I would wake up very early and my office uh, where we lived at that point was, was out back from our home because my office was in the States and I lived in Puerto Rico, my wife and my son. And I remember walking out, out back and it was early and it was just... It was just one of those times where you just didn't see the end at all. And, you know, I turned to my wife, she was standing there and I just said, wow, the gift of pain, it wakes you up early in the morning. It keeps you up late at night and it makes you do and perform more than you ever thought you could. And I said, as tough as it is, there is a gift with this. I don't know what it is, though. One day I would recognize it. But today, I'm just sitting in it, and that's how the title came up. And, and interestingly enough, my wife is so creative. She said, "If you don't use that title, I'm going to use it." <laughs> <laughs> but at that time, I wasn't thinking about writing a book. But it's that's 
that line stuck with me. That that line, this probably one of the cleanest burning fuels that you have as a person is pain. It makes you do things that you would nor- normally do. It pushes you beyond where you are. And that's how I came up with the title. Okay. So I want to inter- um, find this gap that you've just created. So you're closing down the company. You realize the gift of pain. And there comes a point which I want to come back to. So I want to rewind it. At what point did you think, okay, my company's ended. I'm in so much pain, but there's a lesson here. And at some point you thought, hey, I know, I'll write a book. So, so <laughs> had you written a book before, Tony, or was this your first one? First book. Okay, right there. So, yep. <laughs> your company ends. <laughs> I, I, I know, I'll write a book. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so lots of people do this, but you have actually completed on it. So I wanted yep. to take you back to that time. And you thought, okay, I've never written a book before. I'm going to write a book. What process did you go through? What was going through your head? What did you do? Great question. And I tell this to all aspiring writers is just sit down and do it. So during that time between December and March of 2020, everybody knows what happened in COVID struck. Everybody and everything was shut down. And I was still dealing with, with legal issues, talking to attorneys every day and just still winding down the business and just trying to get through that trauma you know, for everybody involved. And I didn't sit down to write a book on purpose. What I did was I said, I have to figure out how to, I I needed to be working on something. Everything was shut down. I didn't have a job at that point. And, and I said, let let me just sit down. And I pulled out an old dusty laptop (laughs) and I literally just sat at a table and I just started typing. I had no idea what it was going to be. And 109,000 words later, I told my wife, I said, I need to organize this. And she said, you know, break it up into chapters. And that's when I started just going through this process and going back and organizing chapters. And I had no expectations that it would sell. I had no expectations of how successful it would be or wouldn't be. What it became, Jeff, really was a journal. It was it started out just me journaling. And I just went back to every difficult time in my life that I could remember. And I put those in there because nobody wants to talk about the things that you can buy. And, you know, nobody wants to talk about that success part of entrepreneurship. And I just wanted to to go back and remember all of the tough times I've been through and how I got through them. So it was really therapeutic for me. But as I kept re- rereading, I said, wow, this would probably help some people. And that's how it became a book. It was literally just a journal for me. Yeah, th- that, that makes sense now. That makes sense. So you got your dusty laptop out and <laughs> You just started writing because you wanted all of this stuff out of your head and on paper. So up until this point, 
Were you into journaling before or was this your first encounter with journaling? No, this was the first time I did it at this level. Okay. First time. Right. When you say at this level, because you got 109,000 words, that, that, that's a lot by any standard. But I, I want to understand. Okay. So when you, you did journaling before then, I take it then, right? Not really. I would write down notes uh, about goals that I would have and things of that nature. I always, I, I believe in documenting what it is that you want to do. And just to a very small extent, I would make notes about certain things I wanted to do in life. But I never had a journal where I would write long sentences and paragraphs about anything related to my feelings. Okay, and that's how this book started. Yeah, I, I see. So I, I think lots of people do that and they make notes or scribble bits here and there, but not to any great extent. So your company ends, you're forced to close it, you go through huge pain, coupled with that, we're in COVID, everything shut down, you get up out your laptop and nothing else to do now, right? So... Let's write some stuff down. And I think probably at this point, you're not thinking about a book. You're just emptying your head, searching stuff. You're 109,000 words in. I mean, that's a book by any standard, which is awesome. And then there comes a point, Tony, where you think, now you've already said, well, yeah, this could help people. But to get from doing the few odd notes here and there to continually writing 100,000 words, 109,000 words, and I know what that takes. So what was different? What happened? What took you from making the odd note to thinking, I'm going to sit down and write like I've never done before? I just, during the process, Jeff, it was... I found that I had just so much to share. I, I just had so many experiences that, of course, other people in the world have had. But as far as my circle of people and friends, a lot of the things that I wrote about, I know they hadn't experienced except through my eyes. Some of, you know, being there for me when I was going through them. And it's a waste for any of us to go to our graves and not share what we've learned. This, that's a total waste. And I wanted to somehow now take these words and put them into a cohesive document that I can then share with people. And I just started organizing it at that point. I had the word and then I, I just started organizing it. And my wife had already written a book. I get a lot of inspiration from her. And I said, how do I make this? How do I take this, 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 these random words and put them in a cohesive way and communicate them to, to the world. And she said, well, the next thing you need to do is, is get an editor and you can, you can use Jara who I used. And I sent her the, the notes after I organized them and came up with, with titles to chapters. And during that process of reading that manuscript as it now became many times, it turns out that I had almost 500 pages <laughs> and she, she whittled it down to about 343 pages. 
Okay. Because I just, she said, you know, you're getting so deep with, with the thoughts, we can cut some of that out and maybe save it for another book. And I said, well, I didn't even intend to write one, let alone two. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's how it came about. It was, it took me three months to write. The toughest time, Jeff, I'll tell you, when I wrote about the passing of my mom, which was in 2015, and I, you know, I sat down to kind of address that subject and I just couldn't do it. I absolutely couldn't do it. And it, that took about a month, literally, of me going to the computer and sitting there and thinking. And then you shed tears and all of the memories, your mind drifts to childhood and all the times I spent with her. And I would just have to close my laptop because it was just too, it was just still too raw. And that probably took the longest for me to sit down. And that was a very, very uh, difficult. That was probably one of the most difficult. Well, it was the most difficult chapter. That one in the past of my dad. Hers was a little bit more difficult because I was there with her when she passed. I was holding her hand when she passed. And, you know, Ed, when you try to write, you're writing from a from a place of emotion. You're writing from your memory, what you smelled and what you saw and what you felt and touched. And it, all of that just rushes back and you cannot push it away if you're trying to get it on paper. And it wasn't a difficult thing for me to, to share it with other people, but I, it wasn't that I didn't want to share it. It was just, I just didn't know how to get through the process of actually writing it down. Because when you write something down, it becomes real, as you know. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and that was a difficult time. What was your mother's name? Her name was Dee. Dee. She sounds yeah. like a wonderful lady. Oh, absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. Not, yeah. not only blessed to have a wonderful lady like that in your life, but also to have such a wonderful lady as your mother. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was an angel. She was clearly an angel. Yeah. 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 So you finished the section you've written on your mom. Are you happy with it? I am. Yeah. And it, the interesting thing is this helped so many people because she had ovarian cancer and other friends of mine who, who have dealt with cancer uh, as far as losing a loved one, they can relate to a lot of the very descriptive parts of that chapter and they say oh i re yeah i remember that and i remember this when it happened to my mom or to my dad and when you get those personal notes and people who call and say oh man that really connected with me then it justifies the it justifies your desire to want to share your experiences i i get that absolutely totally i lost my mom with ovarian cancer also Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. so I probably had similar journeys. Yeah. Okay, now I want to question more about your writing and how it became a book. And the reason for this, Tony, is because lots of people speak to me and they say, hey, Jeff, I want to write a book, but I, I have no idea how to do it. And to say, just do it doesn't help those kind of people. They're, they say, well, I've done this and I've done that. Now, yours is a fascinating one, which is why I'm drilling more into your story than I perhaps normally would. So you didn't intend to write a book. You started writing. 
and you're capturing your thoughts, your feelings, what happens to you. At some point, the dawn of realization comes, hey, this can help somebody. Perhaps it could be a book. You continue writing. You have the cathartic process about writing about your wonderful mother. And then you're also blessed because your wife has written a book. And so probably some people listening have gone, oh, that's okay then, that's easy. Let me tell you, no, it isn't. It's probably, it's worse. It's probably <laughs> worse. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's probably worse. So, okay, it's handed over to an editor. So at this point then, did you just hand over your what you'd written? So there comes a point when you think, oh, this could be a book. So when you finished writing and you'd given it to your editor, had you played around with it to make it to make that transition from a journal into a book? Or did you just hand over the journal to the editor and then she came back to you and says, Tony, here's what you need to do? What what happened? Oh, that's that's a that's a good one, Jeff. I organized the chapters and it was literally almost as it is today in terms of the format. So I came up with names for the chapters and I organized, you know, I broke the book up into chapters to start and the end of it. And at that particular point, I thought that I had what I needed to give to the editor. And when I said, I just emailed her, it's a word document. Yeah, yeah. Word document, and I emailed her this word document, and my direction to Jara was, and she knows me, she, you know, but she's. I said, look, I don't know what I don't know. I'm looking for you to tell me. I said, here is just the, requ- the requirement that I have is this: there are there were three or four chapter titles that I did not want changed, and I said the other ones play with the words as you will no problem, but keep the spirit of it. And that's what she did. And she didn't add anything to the book. But as I mentioned before, she took a lot out because it, when you write, Jeff, especially, and you notice you have several bestsellers. When you write a lot of times, especially if it's coming from the heart, you may tend to repeat certain things, but in a different way. And she said, look, I think the point was made so we can eliminate this section, which is almost a duplication of the idea, although it was worded differently. And that's what that's a lot of what she removed. Okay. So what one of the things about a successful book, which we'll come on to in a little while, one is the title. The other is the naming of the chapters. Because people will look at the title and think, oh, what's this about? Then they'll read the chapter titles. And if the chapter titles don't leap off the page and sell then it really doesn't matter how good the text is in those chapters, it won't sell. So now I have to ask you, you said you can change anything you like, but not the title of those four chapters. They must stay as they are. So, Tony, what are those chapter titles and why is the zero latitude on them? Uh, one, <laughs> that's a good one, Jeff. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm being interviewed by Oprah. You are wonderful. <laughs> this, is, this is amazing. <laughs> Bless you. I should have brought a box of tissues with me. But anyway. 
first chapter was talking about my dad, and that one is entitled Losing My GPS. Because as a young man, your father is the one who you probably emulate the most. And when he passed, which was back in, in 2006, it was, you know, I had a young child, three years old at that point. And who do I go to now to find my way, so to speak? So that chapter was extremely important. And then, of course, my mom, it was entitled Three Weeks with an Angel. And it spoke, it was, and I named it that because uh, we were in Chicago visiting her. And we literally flew home a four-hour flight from Chicago to Puerto Rico. And this, she had a doctor's appointment that morning. And when I got home, Jeff, my oldest sister called me and said, well, you know, I was excited. I mean, we literally just walked in the house. We hadn't even put our bags down. And I just walked out back and talked to her. And she said, well, you know, we went to the appointment today, doctor's appointment. And I was happy because, my, you know, the trajectory was going okay for my mom's treatments. And she told me that the doctor said that my mom had 24 hours to live. And I was just devastated. I just saw her literally, you know, a few hours ago. I'm like, what happened since we got on an airplane? I mean, and I literally just gave the phone to my wife and I just couldn't talk at all. And that was, and from that point, I flew back out. I don't even know how I got to Chicago. I flew, my wife made the arrangements that night. Somehow my uncle was with me on the same flight. I don't even know how that happened. I can't recall, you know, your, your, your body shuts down with drama, with, with trauma. So there are a lot of things I don't remember about that night. So forgive me for that. I remember being on a plane early the next morning within 24 hours of arriving back in Puerto Rico. And I was, I, I just remember being there. I had a rental car. I don't remember renting a car. It, it was just a blur. And the one thing I remember telling my family, <clears throat> my sisters and nephews, I said, just don't call or text me, you know, after I land. I was like, I'll just see you at the hospital. Just I, I didn't want to get a call while I'm driving because I didn't know how I was going to react to that. And got to the hospital and and my mom, she's a fighter. So she lived for three weeks after that. And that's why I named it three weeks with an angel because it was just a wonderful experience. And I stayed with her and then my wife and son flew back to be with me for a while there. So that, that, that was that chapter name. And then the third one was most important was exit wounds. And in anybody who, who has dealt with, with, you know, the loss of a company or even any traumatic loss and the exit wound is Typically, when, when a bullet goes in to a space, whatever that is, it's a small hole. But on the other side of it, it's a gaping wound, right? Even if you're just target shooting. And that's what happened with business. I went in small. And on the opposite side of that, there was this massive exit wound for the company and personally. So I didn't want those chapters the titles of those chapters to be changed. And those were the three that were extremely important to me. Okay. I think you said there were four, or did I get that wrong? Yeah, I said three or four. Those were the uh, three. Oh, the, the top three. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I completely get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And I can understand why you would not want to change them. I mean, they are 
beautiful in their meaning, I think you would have to understand what they mean, apart, yeah. apart from the one you've written about your mother, which is Three Weeks with an Angel. Yes. So um, you could guess what's happening there. The others, I just love the titles of them. In fact, Exit Wound is, is a great metaphor for lots of things that happen in life. And we get hurt. But the problem is when we do get hurt and we have pain, we carry it with us and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the, the metaphor of the exit wound really, really makes sense to me. I like that. So how many chapters are in your book altogether? There are 10 chapters in the book. Okay. Yeah. So, so did your editor change the name of the other chapters? She worked with them a little bit, but kept, you know, basically kept the same premise of all of them. Okay. I think cool. she, she made some, she made some small modifications to them. Not much. It's, it's, it wasn't like I didn't recognize the chapters. <laughs> after <laughs> she just, just changed a few words around, but kept the spirit and the meaning. That That's exactly. good. That, that's good. That's good. Okay. Now, normally when people write a book and the authors come onto the show, what I normally ask is, why were you the person to write this book? And so I think we have the answer to that already, which is awesome. Why did you write the book? We have the answer to that already. But now this one then, Tony. Who is it for? What's it about? So we've spoken about your journey in writing this book and the unlikely author that you are and came through and did it. So 100% respect there, my friend. But then now it's for the reader's journey. Who is this book for? What is your book about? And what will the reader get from it? Wonderful question again. You 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 must be a very accomplished <laughs> author, <laughs> which I know you are, <laughs> because you know these questions. It, you know the the reason behind them, and you know how they're going to come across with another author. So I applaud you again for that, Jeff. Ah, oh, bless you. Thank you. What happens is the sometimes in life, what you intend to. Be, what your intentions are for a desired outcome can change, meaning that when when I got the first copy of the book in my hands, I thought that it would be for people probably 35 and older who had experienced things that life has thrown their way and they survived it. And come to find out that younger people gravitated toward the book as well. People in the 18 to 25 range, because when you, you know, as you go through the book, it tells how I got started. The book shows them how I went from college and interning to starting a business and everything that came along with that. And kind of miss a little bit of that as an author. You kind of forget that piece because it's your life. And as I thought about it, the book really does resonate probably with anyone from 18 to 80, in all honesty, because it's a lifetime of various experiences. It's definitely geared toward people who have challenges in, in life and they don't know how to get through them. And a lot of times it's a lonely place. But then when you read other people's stories, you say, oh, my goodness, I thought I was the only one. And I grew up reading biographies and autobiographies. I, you know, I read nonfiction. 
And it, look, we are a product of who we were when we were younger. And it turns out that my book is a memoir. It makes complete sense when you understand that's what I read growing up. And I think it's, there's many people who have purchased three, four, five copies of the book, the same person, because they gifted it to other people because there were certain parts of the book that connected with them. And I don't know, and we don't have the time to go into all of the reasons why, but I think there were particular chapters that connected with people of different age ranges. And what it did was everybody who's read the book that I've had communication with, they have one resounding feeling is that it feels like we, them and I are literally sitting together with chairs facing each other, just having a conversation. That's the feel of the book. And that's how, just like when you and I are sitting here now, I realize there's a worldwide audience you have, but it just feels like a conversation between me and you and everybody else is just a fly on the wall. And that's the feel of the book, not designed to be that way, but that's how I am as a person. And it, in, I think anybody over the age of 18, there's something in there for them. I think there's also something in the book specifically for people who are in situations and having challenges today and they have lost track of their dreams because life got in the way and they don't know how to get back on track. And there are people in life who have taken some bruises and they say, okay, well, just getting by is enough. As long as I can survive, as long as I don't have to go through what I went through yesterday, I'm okay. And what they do is they say, well, those dreams that I had before, that was for the younger me. Times have changed. I've changed. And I don't need to do those things. I don't need to obtain those things. I'm okay as I am. And then they, then they begin to create an environment of comfort for their current situations. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to travel. I can watch it on, on YouTube. I can watch other people do the things that I wanted to do. And what this book does is it shows that after I, I deliberately, after Jara sent me the, the manuscript back, I deliberately at the very end of a few chapters after some of those traumatic chapters, I put a note in there that said, and my business thrived after this. Because what I wanted, that was very deliberate after the fact, because what I wanted people to know, although I just buried my dad, my business was better than ever. Although I just buried my mom, my business grew even more. And I want people to know, even when you're dealing with tough times, the world continues to move. And I think one of the valuable lessons in the book is that if you understand that principle, that even in your pain, life is going to continue to go forward, whether you walk with it or not, is you need to do something at that moment and realize that if you stand still, every day you will get further and further and further behind. So even in your pain, you have to find a way to move forward. And I illustrated that, I know, after each chapter, and what the what the reader would see is you and I are sitting here in different parts of the world. We're laughing and joking and smiling. And in the moment for you, 
with your mom, for me, with my mom and my dad and closing the business, there were times I didn't know if I would ever laugh again. You just don't feel like it. It just feels inappropriate. And you don't even have the energy some days to laugh. But we're products of, we're, you and I are examples for your audience to say, wow, so there is life after trauma. Absolutely there is. And have I seen the worst trauma of ever in, that I may see in my life? I don't believe so. I don't know. I'm not looking for it. But the thing I know is from the book, even if I, even as I think about it now, what it tells me is that I've developed into this person because of those things that I'm more prepared for the future in case something is doesn't go my way, in case I have to deal with things I wouldn't want to deal with. And I think that's really the spirit of, of the title, The Gift of Pain. And and I illustrated to you how the book cover is, but if you change your perspective on pain, it can become a gift. And I remember in the moment, I remember very vividly in the moment of when my mindset shifted, Jeff, when I was going through closing the business, when I realized I had to, and I went from praying every day for new orders because that was our lifeline. All they had to do was just to turn that knob and release all the orders that we were had received over the years because it was a recurring contract. All they had to do was just turn that knob. All of the orders would have flowed. You and I probably wouldn't be talking today, maybe not this, not in this capacity. But I went from praying for that because it was an immediate lifeline. And then at some point I realized, and it was pretty quickly, that this was meant to be. It is what it is. And this is not, and this is not part of my future. That there is another part of my life that's going to be better than this, although it's painful right now. And I accept that that's okay. All right. And then my prayer became one day just let me, just let give me the strength to get through this because I understood in that moment that this too shall pass. I understood that this is just part of my story. And I understood that I had been equipped already. If I can bury my parents, I can deal with this. We had lived through a hurricane in Puerto Rico that 4,000 people died and the eye went right over our house. We survived that, right? And as difficult as this was, I had been through much worse. But every, every time you go through pain, it feels different. There's a little bit of it that you recognize, but it's different. And you have to come to reality that although it's different, you have the tools, but it's different. And that's the other part of the book is I changed my perspective on pain and realized it wasn't there to hurt me or to stop me. It was really there to teach me a lesson and to shift to the path that I was on because the best path for me was not the one that I was on. And that's another really valuable lesson from the book. Wow, there's lots to unpack in there, which I'm going to come back to in a while. But having written a few books myself, there was, um, I'll call it a strange phenomenon, but I, I now I've done a few, I don't think it, it is. But I'm going to come back to you and take you back to when you first started writing your book. 
to the point where you finished the book, do you think you were a different person? Oh, absolutely, for sure. Yeah. This here's one thing about success, and this is the secret of success. This is this is a secret that I don't know how many people are willing to share it, but this is very very valuable. Is when when you're having success in any way, shape, or form, life and times move very quickly. Life is moving very fast. And it's not until you deal or face challenges or deal with challenges that life slows down almost to a screeching halt. And in those moments, that's when you grow. And that's when you're able to reflect. And that's when you see the traits and the gifts and the blessings you have. It's not during the successful times because you're moving so fast during successful times. But it's when life comes to that screeching halt that you have to look at yourself, evaluate where you are, realize who you are, and then acknowledge your responsibilities and acknowledge your gifts as well. And the secret to all of this, the success is, especially from the book, when I stopped and I looked at it and I said, I've come so far from that, you know, 20 year old that started a business so far that I didn't even realize how far I had come. And, and it was interesting when I closed the business there was this huge ecosystem of people who I was supporting and didn't even realize the magnitude of it. The vendors and suppliers and everybody, even from a personal standpoint, all of these people who were tied to my success, not as freeloaders, but just as people that have to service that ecosystem, right? You have people take care of taking care of your home. You have people taking care of the toys that you have. We don't want to get into all of that, but there was this ecosystem. And I'm thinking to myself, how did this little boy from the South side of Chicago, whose dad had a third grade education, but was one of the most intelligent people I've ever met still to this day. How did I get to this point? And where I had made as you know, companies, $110 million at that point. How did that even come about? And how was that even humanly possible, right? Be this was before the age of the internet. How was that even possible? And along the way, you know, people would always say, you know, you're doing amazing things. And I never wanted to, to really deal with that because I was just doing what I did. I was just trying to grow this business. And it wasn't for statue or or... It wasn't for the outward appearances. I was just doing what I love to do. And along the way, and I got to the point, I wrote this book. And that's when I realized after 29 years, 30 at that point, that's when I realized that, wow, I've become something much different than I used to be. And this is, this can inspire other people, but I would if, if, if you're driving at 100 miles an hour, Jeff, right, you don't see the, the, the 
streets to the left and right of you. You barely see the cars on the road because you're going by them so fast. But when you slow down and you look to the left, you look to the right, you see beautiful trees and landscapes. You see other people. And that's what I was blessed to experience throughout all of this, this, these tough times. And that's, as far as the book is concerned, that's exactly what I learned about myself. Fascinating. Well, you started that section by saying, here's the secrets to success. And you dropped lots of little bombs along the way, which I want to pick up and visit them because I'm sure there are many might have noticed them, some didn't. So I want to go back and revisit them. And that first thing is, we don't learn anything from success. You didn't say that exactly, but that's what you meant in the in the sentence that you say. We don't learn from success. Uh, we only learn something from failure or, exactly. or something we don't know. So failure, gift, pain, whatever you want to call it, is there for a blessing to give us a gift and to slow everything down in order for us to learn something. So whether that comes through trauma, whether it comes through a difficult time in business, the effect of that is the same. And this is something I like to talk about in the introductions when I do a training course. Let me give you an example. I really encourage people to get things wrong. So earlier, I didn't know whether you knew what IBM stand for. I thought, I'll, I'll, I'll think that you probably do, and I would never embarrass you, of course. But do you know what IBM stands for? Yes. What did you learn? Nothing, because you already knew the answer. But there are lots of people who didn't know. I thought, you know, I never knew IBM stood for International Business Machines. So we only learn something when we're in a position of, let me call it failure, in that we don't know the answer to something. So when you go on a training course or a conference or something like that, you should rejoice getting things wrong because that means you're learning something. And it's, it's a wonderful place to be. The other thing you said, which I quite like as well, is that each time we encounter hurt, difficulties, or anything, each time is different. So I'm like you. I've lost my mom. I've lost my dad. Each time, completely different. You can't compare the two. Completely different, right? Another one that came across was recognizing how far you've come. Now, I'm talking more than I would like to talk. However, there's some very important points that I don't want to skip over, and this is particularly one of them. And it's recognizing how far we've come. One of the mistakes that people do on their journey of success, they set a goal, and then... Whilst completing that goal, they become a different person in a number of different ways. And at some point in their journey, they reach their goal. But before they've reached their goal, they set another one. And then they go past the original goal that they've set in pursuit of the second goal. Before they reach the second goal, 
they become a different person. Uh, you see, I've, I've got the privilege now of seeing Tony on screen and he's nodding, he's got a great big smile on his face. So as they're, as they're pursuing the second goal, they become a different person. It's like writing a book. You're a different person at the end of the book to the person that started writing. It's, it's, it's a strange experience. You have to write a book to understand that, I think. But here's my point. People fail to recognise how far they've come. So they can set six goals and go all the way past goal one, two, three, four, without celebrating them. And that's right there is one of the big mistakes in being successful. Because I was talking to a guy, I'm a mentor to a few people, and one of them said, is this it, Jeff? I'm unfulfilled. I'm unhappy. And I said, well, happiness is different to fulfillment, but let's have a look at fulfillment. And he, like you, spent hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, is this it? And I said, well, was it, was it your original goal to earn, earn $100 million? And he said, no. I said, well, what was your first goal? He said, well, a million dollars. And I said, what did you do when you achieved a million dollars? And that was the point he didn't. So here's my message. I'm rambling on way more than I would. I love it. Very but, valuable. Yeah, yeah. Here's the message. When you set a goal and you achieve it, whether you're a different person or not, stop. Slow down. Slow all the way down and recognize how far you have come and perhaps the different person you are now to when you started. Celebrate the goal rejoice and then think about the next goal and here's the thing as well you might think who do i need to be to achieve that next goal because you may not be the same person so tony thank you for starting that off <laughs> and, dro and dropping those little bombs along the way but they're so valuable to pull out there and make such a difference, particularly with purpose and fulfillment. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm so happy that the viewers can't see me because I got tears in my eyes. It, it because it, you know, what it does, Jeff is, and here's the thing that this another important thing is you people show success on the internet and you know they're showing Lamborghinis and they're taking pictures on boats and all of that stuff. And they look like they're about six years old. And what you and I can identify from a thousand miles away is a successful person and one who's pretending to be successful. Because successful people, again, not using any particular parameters around success or definition of success, but successful people, when they talk to other successful people, it's almost as if you're talking to yourself because you hear words that only other people would use and people would just, and they would describe things in a manner that you feel like you're literally listening to yourself. So as, as you were describing it, you know, the reason why I just got, you know, these tears in my eyes is because it, it, it just takes you back to those moments and it, and, and that feeling that, and, that, and that's why I was smiling at first, because I can relate to exactly what you're saying. And there is a language that successful people have that it's a foreign language to other people. It's foreign, but anybody can learn it. That's the that's the thing. And the only way you learn it 
you don't sit in the classroom. Life teaches you this language. And, you know, and, and, and here's the other thing about success. Success is not about you becoming this bigger than life figure. Success is recognizing who you have become. And when you recognize who you become, it is extremely humbling. So it's the opposite of what you see in the media. Success, success leads to humility and empathy, probably more than anything, because you realize out of all the people on earth, 8 billion people on earth, for some reason, you have the gifts and the talents, you develop stuff, but there's something inside of you as well that you can't take credit for. And you have you realize at a certain point that that thing or those things you didn't deserve, nor did you create. So how can you boast about them? Right. And that humility is is that's what success is about. It's recognizing the responsibility that comes with being a leader recognizing the responsibility that you're going to be surrounded by people who may never achieve their goals. And that's a sad thought, but you don't blame them because everybody doesn't have exactly everything they need to get to some of the dreams that they had. And it's a sad reality that when, when we, when we face that as humans, right, that we won't become what we thought we wanted to become. For, for whatever reasons, life happens. So success breeds humility as opposed to arrogance. That's what it breeds. And another thing, Jeff, is successful people, sometimes we just want to be our, we, we want to be anonymous sometimes. I'll share this really quick anecdote related to that. We've, we've, we've been boaters. We lived on an island. Right. And we had a boat and we had a full time captain, Javier, I love him to death. And we would go over <laughs> to your neck of the woods. We would go to Tortola. It's an 80 mile boat ride from Puerto Rico to the United Kingdom, Tortola. And we would go over there and Javier, you know, it's a big boat. Javier can't do everything himself. So I would be out with the dock lines with my t-shirt on and my shorts and my Crocs and take the Crocs off and I'll run to the front of the boat and he's driving and navigating in trying to dock. And here I am out there just with some sunglasses on and tossing these lines out to the, to the crew at the Marina and I'm throwing them, they're landing in the water and I tie it off and I tie it off wrong. And it was hilarious because they viewed him as the owner of the boat. And they viewed me as a deckhand. And not one time, Jeff, in all of the years that we went to Tortola, did I correct anyone and tell them that I was the owner of the boat. Not one time. I wanted to be the deckhand. I just wanted to be the anonymous little guy out there messing up the dock lines, hosing off the boat to get the salt water off. Because we're so used to the pressure of being in charge. We're so used to being the ones having to make all the decisions for our companies and everything else. And sometimes we just want to be anonymous. And we don't need the credit for the things because that thing, that toy, as a business owner, I didn't get to enjoy nearly as much 
as people on the outside may think successful people enjoy toys. Because even when I'm there on a boat in the middle of the ocean, in the back of your mind is all the responsibilities you have. So that humility, that empathy is a sure sign that you're talking to a successful person. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. I want to backtrack again on something else you said earlier. So you said, yeah, we got this $100 million. I don't even know how I got there. So that's an interesting one, right? Because this conversation now is going to drift into purpose. Because I've spoken to quite a lot of people who have enjoyed success in their lives. And they say, I don't know how I did it, just like you. I don't know. How how on earth did that happen? And it happens because when you find something that you love, the money doesn't matter. And if you do things on purpose and you're good at it, which you clearly are, then the money just follows. That's what happened. So here's an interesting one for you, Tony. In writing your book and completing your book, have you ever considered what is my purpose? Yes. And the only time that I had the time and space to do that was when I didn't have that company any longer which was one of the gifts that I can look back on and clearly recognize that that was a blessing. It was a gift from that pain. And it was during COVID when life will teach you whether you want to learn or not, whether you ask to be taught or not. And I was at that point, again, dealing with lawyers and COVID and everything else where I could not physically do anything. And I had to sit there certain days and I would just stare out toward the ocean. And I thought about what was important to me, which I always knew family was family and friends, the most important thing for me, hands down. It's always been, but I thought about what's, what did life mean to me at that point for me? Because I never tied my identity to that particular company, right? Even all the people that worked for me, I told him, don't call me boss. Just we're team members, period. So I didn't even tie the identity of ownership to myself. But there came a point when I sat down and I realized that the company wasn't my identity nor my purpose. And I thought about what does my life mean? If I disappear tomorrow, what would people remember me for? And I thought about that point. It, and, and, and I knew in that moment it was to share my experiences with other people and they can take that information and better themselves or take that information and see that there are ways out of the current circumstances that they're in and see that if I could do it, which is follow my dreams with, with very little experience doing any of the things that I did, they can as well. And that's when I figured out or not even figured out. That's when I was quiet enough, quiet enough and present enough to hear what was inside of me already. 
So it wasn't an intellectual awakening. It was more of being still enough to recognize what I already knew that was suppressed because of all of the fast moving parts that were in my life. And it wasn't until those fast moving parts were gone that I was now able to take this little thing that was always inside of me. And it was, it made a louder noise than anything else at that point in my life. And that's when I knew. Okay, cool. I want to take this a slightly different, slightly different angle. Backtracking again. So you said there are people that don't achieve their goals and that's a shame, right? So I want to split the world, the, the population into three. There are people that set goals and people that don't set goals. Of the people that set goals, I want to split those in two. There are people who set goals and don't achieve them. And there are people that set goals and they do achieve them. So staying with these goal setters, some achieve them, some don't. What do you think the difference is between the two? I believe it's the why. There may be other factors, but I really believe it's you have a goal, but why is it important for you to achieve it? Because here's the thing about goals. Here's the thing about success. Very important lesson that I've learned and still continue to learn to this day is, is you can plot a path. You can say, I'm going to be successful and I'm going to achieve this. And you can lay out a path. And a lot of times in life, that path is going to deviate from the one that you laid out. And your success, you may get to that point, but it can look very different when you arrive there than you thought it was going to, to look. And you could take a, a longer journey to get there or a shorter one. And a lot of that stuff, Jeff, in all honesty, is out of your control. It's out of your control. But here's the thing. The why is the important thing because most people get stuck on the vehicle to get from point A to point B. And point B is the goal. That's the dream. That's the destination. They start out at A. And as soon as there is a deviation, they abandon their goal. Because for them, it wasn't about the why. It was more about the vehicle. This career is going to allow me to buy a new home. This business is going to allow me the financial freedom I'm looking for. Not why. And when that when that company lays people off, then people abandon that goal, that dream. When the business closes or isn't doing well, people abandon the dream. Those are just vehicles to get you to the dream. But when you have a clear why, the reason why I'm working to get to that goal is because I have a kid in college or because of I want to take care of people in my family. I want to help out this community. Then what happens is when life throws you a curve, you simply dodge it or you go with it, but you continue moving toward that goal and that dream. So I think most people are so focused on the vehicle to get there as opposed to why it's important to get there in the first place. So the people who succeed 
what you realize in life is, as you look at any successful person, almost none of them took the path they thought they were going to take to get to the level of success that they have today. That, but they got there. Yeah, yeah. This is so, so powerful. I want to expand upon it a little. So when people come to me and they say, well, I've set goals and goals don't work. And I say, yeah, yeah goals don't work unless you do. That's, that's one thing, right? And then the other thing is this question, why? I'll ask, why do you want it? Some people say, I don't understand. What do you mean? And then it's very, very evident that here's someone that's watched all the movies, read all the books, done all about goal setting, but still don't quite get it. So I put this round in a different way. And I say, well, let me, let me explain something first. You know about the carrot and the stick. So the carrot is, if you do this, you'll get that. And if you don't do it, then I'll, I'll beat you. That, that's the theory behind the carrot or the stick. So motivation, we're, we're either motivated to do something or we're motivated to avoid pain. It's one or the other. So the difference that you're alluding to here, when someone doesn't have a big enough why and then they deviate, this is what I ask, and, and I say, what would happen if you didn't achieve your goal? Now, some people go, oh, man, no, 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 that's not, that can't happen. I can't allow that to happen. I've got to put my kid through college, so I've just got to keep on going. So that's what you mean by a why, right? If, exactly. Yeah, so if you ask someone a question, what happens if you didn't get it, and they say, Ah, well, then I just I just set another goal and I'll go for something else. And you say, okay, now we have a wanderer because they don't have the why and they don't have a big enough reason to overcome the pain, the adversity and all else that therein is. And that's one of the big differences. So thank you for sharing that. I do appreciate Absolutely. it. Okay, I want to go back to your book. So you're a first-time author. You've written this book. We now have a choice. Do you go to a publisher or do you self-publish? <laughs> big, big grin on his face now. <laughs> this is one of the, the easiest decisions I've ever made in my life. Okay, go through your journey because lots will want to know this, I'm sure. This is where you realize how valuable everything you've been through in the past is to you. People call it a toolkit of tools that you have. People call it a, a bag of tricks. Whatever it is, is your experiences up until today will inform how you make decisions moving forward. And the reason why I say it was the easiest decision I've ever made in my life was because of this. As I started to research after the manuscript was done, I said, now, how do I get this out to people? And then I started thinking about other industries because a book is nothing more than a product. You got to take the emotion out of this. It's just a product that sits on a shelf and it needs to be distributed. And I looked at all of the other products that are similar. Music industry is one. I looked at things that where an artist 
has created something and then it goes as a distribution channel. And why is there, you know, why is there a, a phrase called starving artist, whether it's music, authors, why is that? And I thought to myself, there's a reason why. And I just dug deeper. Okay, how do how do all of these recording artists go broke after they sell millions of copies? And I said, well, they had bad contracts. Well, who were the contracts with? The distribution companies. Okay, take that to the book industry. Why are there starving authors? It's because of the contracts. Well, what are the contracts? It's an agreement between them and a distributor in terms of who's going to get what, which we call royalties. And I started looking at a lot of the big publishers. And first, they will decide if your book will ever be published. And that can take 18 months. They will also maybe help you decide what the cover should look like. Well, I didn't want to give up that. They also may decide what the content should be. Well, I want to have creative control of my content. And after I've done all of this work, my life's experiences, pouring all of this information into this book, why in the world would I want to make 25 cent or 50 cent for each copy that goes out. Why in the world would I ever have a lifetime of knowledge and wisdom and experiences and pain and joy and give it away for 25 cents per copy? Then I started looking at how they price, how they, the distributors and the big publishers price things. And I said, absolutely not. And then I remember the contracts that we had as a company out of this company and the contracts we had with these huge multinational corporations where we would actually provide services, Jeff. And somehow, some way, we would see what their pricing was to their customers for the work that we did. And how was it that they would actually make 100% more than we made and then lift one finger? I said, oh, okay, no problem. And I chose to self-publish. And for the audience members, what that means is I didn't go to ask this big company if my material was valuable enough in their eyes to share with the world. That's what you do when you have a publisher. They decide, not you. I didn't want anybody to tell me that my material shouldn't be published at all. Or if it is published, I will wait till next year because there are a lot of good popular books coming out this year. And we have to put yours down in this, this other category. Well, I control what I can control, which is my destiny in, in, in a lot of regards. And I didn't want people telling me what to do with my life story. And I refuse to let other people get rich off of my life story because I have responsibilities to my family to provide. And it's either in, in, in business, either is, most of the time, it's either you or them that's want to make the money. And all of the money is made up front before any work is done. It's in the contract. It's in the agreement. So I chose to, then my wife helped me out with this tremendously. So what I did was I went with a print-on-demand partner. And for the audience members, what that means is my manuscript is on file at a printing company. 
And through my website, when someone orders a book, they get notified immediately and they will print one copy or they would fill that one order at a time. So I didn't have to go to a big publisher. I didn't have to go to a big printing house and order 500 copies and put them in my garage. And then as somebody placed an order, I would have to go package them and mail them and all of that good stuff. The, the print on demand company does that. So when I get a new order on my site, an email goes to the printer. They print that one book for that one order. I'm charged for a printing cost. I'm charged for shipping and a tiny processing fee. And they bill me for that. And the rest of the money is mine because that's the way that it works. It's either going to be you giving away your money to someone else or you keeping it for yourself. But Jeff, here's the thing. I would not have that knowledge if it wasn't for the previous years of experience. That Again, that's the secret to success. If you give up on your dreams and who you're going to become, I became a savvy business person because of following those dreams because I was up late at night learning about business and studying and asking every question I could of everybody that I could. And here's a time that it could pay off. But imagine if I would have aborted my dreams. Imagine if I would have gave up as soon as that vehicle veered off the road a little bit. I wouldn't have the knowledge to understand that, that it's in the contract. It's in the agreement. That's how deals are done. That's why artists are starving. That's why recording artists and authors are not very successful a lot of times financially. They're popular, but not, but not in a monetary way. And that's the thing that I've learned, Jeff, from 30 years at that point in business. All of that pain, here's one more gift that I was able to experience because I followed my dreams. Man, I hit the passion button there, didn't I? <laughs> So you are not an advocate of publishing or being published by a publishing house, which I understand. The fascinating thing there, which again, I'll add something to it. Uh, what the publishing uh, companies do, they fund everything, make all the decisions, the book title, the book cover, how much the book is and everything else. They pay you five or 7% of the cover price, which is not a lot. But the interesting thing is, in order to sell it, you have to do all the work anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so, and there's no way a publisher will invest in you if you're not prepared to do all the work to sell your book. So, uh, I mean, one size does not fit all. Publishing is right for someone. Yep. Self-publishing is right for someone else. Print on demand is okay for someone else mm -hmm. so tony if someone wants to get hold of your book the gift of pain because they're thinking jeff you're talking too much how do i get this book <laughs> <laughs> how, how do we get your book tony yeah you're never talking too much you're, you're providing so much value people can find the book at the uh the website it's called giftofpainbook.com giftofpainbook.com and it will link directly to the page the sales page and you can learn more about the book and then you can purchase a copy there it's available 
also on ebook, Jeff, for those people who read on Kindles and tablets. And it's also available as an audiobook. And here's the other thing, a, a lesson for me, Jeff, is that why hire somebody to tell your story? So I use my wife's recording equipment because she does voiceovers. I use her recording equipment in a hot closet in Puerto Rico <laughs> <laughs> and recorded almost 10 hours of audio. The first time I ever did anything like that in my life. Yeah. So the and first again, time you've written a book and the first time you've made an audio book. Yeah. And I wanted people, I wanted to tell the story in my own voice and an added bonus for the people who listen to the audio book. My son blessed me with his willingness to do the forward. And he did the forward, but he's, he's a musician as well. He's in college in Boston at Berkeley college of music studying production. And he actually made the song that's playing in the background as he's reading the forward. So the, the audio book for me is very special in that I can hear my son's voice and other people can hear his voice and his work product as well, which is his music and they're available, but, uh, you know, it's 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 a blessing in so many different ways to write a book. And wonderful. What's your son's name? His name is is Anthony, and oh, we call okay. him TJ for Tony Junior. Okay, uh, we have the same name, but he is such a different person, Jeff. He's a creative. Yeah, and he teaches me so much. He's taught me patience. He's taught me to be more authentic with myself because he's authentic. And I told him we were traveling recently in New York, where he just took us on this journey. Uh, we've been to New York, New York many times, but he went with his friends from college and he wanted us to go to the Natural Museum of History. And I said, well, you know, TJ, we're here. We were there for about three or four days. And I said, you lead us. I'm not leading us at all. And one day I leaned over to him, Jeff, and whispered. I said, this is a special moment for me because the teacher has become the student and I'm enjoying you being my leader. And it was a precious moment. Yeah. One, it, it is a, a wonderful time in life. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll come back to the book in a moment. I want to find out now about probably a terrifying time in your life. You're in Puerto Rico, as you said, in the midst of a hurricane, 4,000 people died and the hurricane went straight over your house. What, what's it like to live through that, knowing what's going on? Looking back, it was just a little bit of water, a little bit of rain. <laughs> it was a little breezy that day. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. Hey, man, you should have been here last week. <laughs> The thing about living on an island, it that makes it worst, is you can't go anywhere. And you have a few days notice. We had just missed Hurricane Irma, who devastated, as you probably know, the islands in Tortola, the UK. And it flattened Tortola. We had friends over there from traveling there. And here, here is a blessing about the hurricane. Irma went over, I believe it was in one month or three weeks before Hurricane Maria hit. And anytime you have a storm, 
the best place for a boat is out of the water. So our captain had our boat taken out of the water and and um, put in a marina way in the back, and they you, you anchor it down to the ground. So our first order of business after Irma passed, which was to get the boat in the water and take supplies to Tortola. We needed to go over and help people. And we had a garage full of supplies. I mean, dozens and dozens of cases of water and tarps and everything else. And then my son came home from school one day, said, you know what, another hurricane is about to hit. And I don't look at the news. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, we got a big one coming. And soon after her, soon after that, Javier rang me and said, uh, problem, we got to take the boat back out of the water. There's another storm coming. And I can hear it in his voice. He had a he had a sound of concern in his voice. And how Javier is a he's a he's a he's a mariner. He's been through a lot of stuff on the water and off the water. And I said, Javier, what's 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 I hear it? What's 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 the problem? He said, based on where it left Africa, based on the, the, the part of Africa that it left, it has a chance of a direct hit. And this is Jeff, like three days before it's supposed to hit. And when a storm is approaching, it's not as dangerous until they name it. When the when the government names a storm, that means that this is something that they are tracking more than just weather. And leading up to the storm, the night before we had storm shutters in our home. And this is a metaphor for life, Jeff. We had storm shutters on our home that we we had uh, purchased over the years and our home was as, as prepared as we could have been. So in life, you prepare as much as you can for difficult times, not wanting them to come, but in case they do. So I felt mentally prepared that, you know, the windows and doors wouldn't blow out. And I remember going outside and just kind of doing a once over of the property and, before I was going to shut those st storm shutters and the tsunami sirens went off because we were only about a mile from the ocean. And that's a very eerie sound. And I looked back toward the house and the thing I said to myself was, this is, it's not going to look like this after tomorrow. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I just knew it was going to look different. So that night you do everything you can do closed all the, the storm shutters on the windows and the doors. We had bottled water in the house that we had stored up. I had my gym shoes on in case we have to move really quickly. And I went to sleep. I went to bed and we knew that it was going to be a direct hit right where we were, because that's where the storm path was. We knew it. And before a major storm, before a hurricane, you get outer bands, which is the weather that precedes the storm, like a big circle, right? Like the, the rings around Saturn. It's that part before you touch the, the planet and you start getting water in the clouds and it gets dark in the middle of the day. And it, it just becomes a wall of gray. And when in life you prepare yourself and then you can't do anything else. There was nothing more I can do. And I laid down in bed with my gym shoes on, my feet hanging off the side of the bed, and I rested. Because the one thing I know about life is get your rest because you're going to have to work pretty soon.
and the storm just came through Jeff. And the only way I can describe it is it sounded like 30 or 40 people outside banging on every window and every door you have trying to get inside. It's coming from the top. It's coming from the sides from all over. And it is such a loud noise, like combat It is a loud noise. And long story short, it ripped off these 800 pound, probably 800 pound shutters off the back of the home, just ripped them off. Like it was aluminum foil. And for whatever reason, we were fortunate that the storm didn't blow through the windows to get inside of the house because we would have been in trouble. But during the storm, the water came in from we don't even know where. One of the at some point I smell smoke come to find out one of the AC compressors on the roof. Was blown down and caught fire and the smoke was coming in the house. And at the same time, we had a cascade of water from the second floor pouring down to the first floor like a waterfall. It sounded like somebody turned the spigot on and water just flowed. We have a fire on the roof in the middle of a hurricane. The house is flooding. The roof tiles are being ripped off. It felt like a little Volkswagen car driving from one side of the roof to the other. And we had to move from room to room because water kept filling up the rooms. And it got quiet. Just all of a sudden. About four o'clock in the morning, it just got quiet. Not silent, but just quiet. You could still hear rain, but it was faint. And my wife and I looked at myself. We hadn't been asleep since, you know, the night before. And I said, oh, it was over. Great. And we were excited and we still didn't open up windows. We were, we were like, oh, okay, we just sat there and talked like, wow, you know. And then the rain started to pick up about 15 minutes later. And I'm thinking to myself, what is that? And it started, Jeff, all over again with the same intensity. And we later found out that was the eye. That quiet little circle of time in the middle of the storm was the eye that went over our home. And when we finally, when the storm finally hit past, you're still getting rain. We opened up a shutter to the front and we went outside. And it literally looked like our neighborhood was bombed. There wasn't a leaf in sight on a tree, nor on a bush. Our driveway, you couldn't take two steps without stepping on roof tiles and debris. And we walked out to the street. We looked to our left, which is where our neighbors were up the hill. And there were people standing in the street, looking back at their homes like we were looking at just some of them had their heads in their hand crying and some people were just, it was like, it was like, it was a bombing. That's what it looked like. And that's what it felt like. And the thing is, is, isn't that like life? Well, for sure it is. For sure it is. Do all your preparation before it happens. Make sure you've done it well. Embrace it when it is happening. And when you think it's all over, it probably isn't. <laughs> yep. it's, more of, it's more of the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? More but of the same. But here's the hope, Jeff. After that, that we it took us a day, literally, to get the water out of the house. One full day to get the water out. 
And then the day after that, we ventured out to the backyard. I went out there and I got up early, took a shower. Now, mind you, we had a generator because we were prepared and our generator was running. So we had electricity in the house. We never lost the water, which everybody else lost water. But the way our house was positioned, was positioned, we didn't lose water because the pipe, the pumps for the water in the street were, were off because there's no power on the island, whole island, 4 million people, no power. But the water still flowed down toward our house because of gravity. So I stepped out back, gym shoes on, and I went out back. And another metaphor for life is you just don't even know where to start to clean up. And that notion that you just start with one piece at a time, it's true. But which is the first piece to pick up? And I remember just standing there and I didn't know which piece to pick up first because there were literally a million pieces just of everything you can imagine. It was, I didn't know where to start. Where do you even start? The first thing I did after that was I went down to the, to the little gazebo and for some reason, I wanted to see if the stereo system worked. That, <laughs> <was around. laughs> that we had speakers. <laughs> Find the weirdest things Man. in trauma, right? <laughs> I went in the gazebo and it worked. It absolutely worked. And I had my little uh, MP3 player connected to it. And the speakers, which we tucked into the bushes because they're all connected with wire, the speaker, the sound came out of all of them. And this is what I did, Jeff. My mom's favorite song, which we actually played at her funeral service, was Happy by the artist named Pharrell, Pharrell mm -hmm. Williams. Everybody knows that song. Yeah. And I turned that song on and I turned it up as loud as I could. So my backyard was blaring with Happy from Pharrell in the middle of a storm. My wife soon woke up and she came outside and we just smiled at each other. We didn't say anything. She started singing. My son soon came out looking at us like we were crazy. And then he went back inside and he got dressed and came out. And we sat and cleaned up as much as we could listening to this song, being happy. Because as the words in the song state, give me all you got and don't hold it back. And we, that's our model for life. But life had prepared me for this storm. Life had prepared us to understand that material things will come and go. And when you want to succeed, you just have to take another step every day toward your goals, no matter what your environment looks like. If you would have saw our backyard in our neighborhood, most people would have gave up and just said, it's just too much. It's just too much. But what do we do in life? We keep moving forward. And that's the metaphor for the storm. That's why a lot of religious people use it in church when you weather a storm. But in real life, it's more traumatic than you can ever imagine. You know, a preacher standing on stage, it's way more traumatic than that. Yeah, but, but what I love about your story is that you use music to change your state. And I think it's wonderful that you played that music at your mother's funeral too. I'm sure Dee would have been smiling when that was going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of the show. In fact, we've been past the end of the show quite a while ago, but... <laughs> <laughs> So there's, there's a question that I ask everyone. Are you ready? You yes. really, really ready? I believe so. Here we go. Tony Kitchens. What is the most important thing you have ever learned? Wow, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of time and brevity... Let me give you an off-the-cuff answer that may not be the same answer tomorrow after I had thought. I would say it's this. It's, it's nothing in life matters except the people who love you and the people you love. Nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing matters except that. And the reason I say that is because I'll go back to my mom for a second when, you know, she's there at home and, and, you know, this was near the end of her life. She didn't want anything. She just enjoyed our presence. She wasn't looking for a present. She didn't talk about cars. She didn't talk about home. She didn't talk about clothes, jewelry, money. And I pray that my end is will be as peaceful as hers was. I really do. And what that taught me was the gift from that pain was that all she wanted was people around her who cared about her and she wanted to see the people she loved. And that's all we talked about. And it was, it was a changing point in my life for a lot of reasons. But again, at that point, nothing else mattered nothing when we went through the storm which was two years after she passed and she was scheduled to move with us if she wouldn't you know she was going to be living with us on the island because that was her hometown puerto rico but when the storm came didn't matter because my mom had already given me the gift well my business was at the end of the road and it was a train wreck that slammed into this huge, strong building and just nearly destroyed everything. It didn't matter because my mom had already showed me through her death, her transition, that none of it mattered. And what I would tell people, your audience is this, we'll have experiences in life. You'll have goals and dreams in life. A lot of them are going to involve obtaining things, obtaining status, which is, which is okay. Because in life, we have to have targets to, to, to aim for. Otherwise, how do we know what our progress is? So I'm okay for people wanting things, right? And that's okay. And enjoy the fruit of your labor by all means. If you're going to pay for a mortgage, pay for a mortgage in a home you want to live in. But know this, that's okay. But know this, that at the end of the road, the most important thing you have is your character. It's the relationships. And along your journey to success, as Jeff and I have talked about, as you're moving and life is going at 100 miles an hour, you have to remember to nurture the relationships that you have. Even if you don't establish new ones, but 
don't go so fast that you are not aware of what your family and friends are going through and the challenges that they're having and the successes that they're having that they need to be congratulated for. So at the end of the day, Jeff, the most valuable lesson is no matter what happens to me in my life with material things and careers and everything else is I pray that when I meet my last days and I'm there at that time, which is going to happen for all of us, I pray that my wife is holding my hand and my son. And that's it. That's that's the only thing that matters to me. Anything else between now and then is a plus. It's a bonus. Anything that I obtain, good. But that's what my dream is for my future. And as painful as it may be for them, but that's the most valuable lesson that I've learned. And I want that for myself and I want that for my family. That's wonderful, wonderful. Tony, if someone wants to reach out to you, wants some help or just wants to contact you, how do they do that? They can go to my website, TonyRKitchens.com, TonyRKitchens.com. And all of my social links are, are down at the bottom of the page. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, I'm sad to say that's the end of the show today. Tony Kitchens, I would love to break bread with you one day, my friend. You feel Absolutely. like a brother from another mother. It's been said that before, and I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been wonderful having you on the show. You have been truly amazing. Thank you so much. Jeff, you're wonderful. I'm going to go cry now, but we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not going to let me off that easy then, huh? Okay. No, not at all. <laughs> Wonderful experience. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion, to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your, your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the follow button, leave a review, and probably the most important thing, please share this show, even if you only share it with one person, because what Tony has had to say today might well move the life of someone you like or love. So please share the program. It really does make a huge difference because without your help, we can't succeed. So please go ahead Hit the follow button right now and share this podcast with a friend or a loved one. I got Tony on camera here. He's crying. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> okay. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. If you'd like to be a guest here on the show, or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me on our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really would like to hear from you. Thank you once again to Anthony Kitchens. You have been amazing. I can't think of another word. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. You as well. Thank you. That's all from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.